Hey Builders, welcome to another episode of the People of Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Bailey. And this week, our guest is Dr. Elizabeth Fedrick. Dr. Fedrick is a licensed professional counselor and the owner of Evolve Counseling and Behavioral Health Services in Gilbert, Arizona. In this episode, we talk about what it's like to own your own practice, as well as how you kind of reset after having spent all day talking with people about difficult things or heavy things that are going on in their lives. We also talked about how you can both start and end relationships in a healthy way. I really enjoyed this episode and I think you're going to as well. Let's jump right in. Hey Liz, how you doing? Hi Taylor, I'm good. How are you? Doing really good. Thank you. And thanks for hopping on the podcast with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So we are recording at the end of a day and you are a mental health professional, right? And so I'm curious, what do you do at the end of a day when you've potentially been kind of diving into people's heads a little bit and maybe talking about some heavier stuff? What do you do to kind of ground yourself even between sessions, but then especially at the end of the day when you're ready to kind of cool down and take some of your own time? Yeah, that's a great question. Usually when I'm ending a day, if the sunlight is still out, I try to go for for a pretty long walk when I get home from sessions and I just I clear my mind, listen to a podcast or an audiobook or whatever the case, sometimes just take some deep breaths and uh, really clear my mind. When that's not possible, then it just, it depends. I mean, a lot of times I do go home and continue to work. And so that's not ideal, but it just depends if I have paperwork or what I have going on for, you know, running the business and everything. But in the evening, I definitely try to make time to do whether it's I go for a walk a couple of days a week, I'll take my son, we go to a boxing class. So it just depends. I really try to be physical, especially it's difficult sitting, you know, up to eight hours a day in the same spot to just really try to move my body at the end of the day. I'm in between sessions. That time is so precious to me. Those, you know, five to 10 minutes that I have between Mm -hmm. where maybe I'll, I'll check my phone, I'll check emails or something like that, but grab a snack, grab some water, but just having those few minutes of just being alone and to decompress, that's a, makes a really big difference in, in how the day goes when maybe a session runs over. And so then you don't really have as much time that that gets difficult. For sure. So I guess let's, let's take a step back and talk about what it is that you do. <laughs> let's do that. So can you kind of introduce yourself and talk about your business and what you do professionally? Sure. So I am, as you said, a mental health therapist. I own a private practice in Gilbert, Arizona, and we, there's six of us providers there. We focus, a lot of our providers specialize in working with children and adolescents, and that is where my career started was working with children and adolescents, but I've since transitioned into working mostly with adults, families, and I do a lot of couples work. I do a lot of relationship work, whether it is with individual or couple or families. That's a big focus of the work that I do. So I see clients at least five days a week, and then On top of that, I teach classes for Grand Canyon University. And as you mentioned, as we were talking prior to recording, I also spent a lot of time on social media and engaged in a lot of marketing and networking, a lot of community events as much as we can during this COVID time. Yeah. So I kind of want to dive into that a little bit more kind of down the road during the interview. Sure. But I first want to talk about how did you make the transition from 
you know, working at someone else's practice or whatever it was that you were doing before you had your own practice, how'd you make that transition from that into starting your own practice and kind of taking things into your own hands? Yeah. So I was working managed care for multiple years and I started as, as a therapist and then transitioned into a supervisor and then to a regional manager position for, for that organization that I was working for. And I was doing that and I was really just not content with the work I was doing. It was really miserable. It was like all the admin aspect of it and all the managing of the providers and and it's managed care in and of itself is a really difficult thing, but then managing managed care was also not so <laughs> ideal. So that was pretty miserable. And so I knew um, when I was going through school, I, my dream was always to own a practice. And that is what I had envisioned from the get-go. But just the logistics of it and taking the leap and, and the risk, it just felt a lot safer to, first of all, be in doing the community mental health. But then at that point, I decided I really wanted to get back to the clinical work. Um, in that role, I was not working with clients directly, and I wanted to get back to that. And so I transitioned to a private practice that was really close to my home, and I was there for a couple of years. That was a scary leap as well, because anytime you you know transition from working for as a therapist working in community mental health you you have a salary so you're making money regardless of if you're with clients or not and transitioning to private practice that is not the case and so i was lucky enough though that i was i had the opportunity to do that and that my home situation allowed for me to take that risk and transition at a private practice and then after I was there for a couple of years, it was, I really liked it. It was a positive experience, but I just had a vision of what I wanted to do with my branding and with the, really the type of providers I wanted to be working with. And I just had a different vision. And so at that point I decided, you know, to take the leap and, and to open my own practice. And I was able to transition. My clients transitioned with me at that time. And so that was a huge blessing and it allowed me to be able to do that. But it, yeah, it was really scary for sure. Oh yeah. I mean, I think that's everybody who is thinking about starting their own business. You have that desire to obtain a, like a bigger growth potential than you can just as a salaried employee somewhere else. Right. But at the same time, you know that there's that risk that you might not make as much money as you did right. as a salaried employee and you have no guarantee. So that does sound pretty scary and I mean, yeah. obviously, you know, for the listeners, my wife, Alexa, works with Liz. And so, you know, we have the same thing going on in our household to a certain extent of, you know, okay, how much is the next paycheck going to be? I don't know. Luckily, you know, things have been fine. And this has been like a great opportunity for her. And she's really enjoying her time at Evolve. But you just never know whether it's going to pan out. So obviously, it's pretty risky. Yes. Yes, it is. What kind of obstacles did you have to overcome in order to make that practice a reality? Before I say that, I just have to touch on that we just love Alexa and she is oh. just <laughs> the light of our lives. We can hear her laugh from across the office. She is so amazing and I don't have to tell you that. You clearly know, but we absolutely, absolutely. adore her. Um, yeah, some of the obstacles when transitioning originally into into private practice, so the one prior to opening mine, 
building your caseload is definitely an obstacle. And I was in a practice where they, all of the other providers took insurance. And so when new clients would call, everyone is looking to use their insurance. And so that was definitely an obstacle of, of building my caseload and getting enough clients that I could, it was a sustainable financial decision. And then transitioning into when I opened mine, the biggest obstacle, which again, we'll get into later, I'm sure with the COVID aspect, but that was, I mean, I was only about eight months in when I'm not even, uh, yeah, I guess I'm about seven or eight months in when COVID hit as I was just really making progress and moving forward. And so we were just starting to get multiple providers on board and we were starting to really see growth. And so then that's when COVID hit. So I'm always going to be have the COVID story to tell about, you know, the obstacles that I faced with opening a business because it was, I mean, it was going so smoothly prior to that. And, you know, there's, there's obviously the, the financial aspects that can be stressful and, and create obstacles. And there's all the very obvious ones, but COVID was definitely my obstacle. Well, let's talk about that. (laughs) <laughs> Let's talk about it. <laughs> How do you feel like that's affected, first of all, yourself as a business owner, but also the concerns that clients are, the concerns that they're coming in with? How has that changed as we've all been locked in our houses and doom and gloom and all of that? Yeah, when it first hit, it was, it was, I mean, and still is such a crazy time, but just that feeling of I had a lot of tears and sleepless nights, let's just put it that way, as I am just starting to build this business and gaining traction. And then all of a sudden, and I think the biggest, you know, the fears of all of the mandates that were being put in place for small business, for businesses in general, but then how that was impacting small businesses. And we saw so many small businesses going out of business and being shut down around us. And and so there was that aspect of all the mandates, but then also the idea of like, are clients even going to want to continue services? Because then they all have very valid fears. You know, we don't take insurance in office in, in my practice. And so uh, we're a cash pay practice and um, they're able to submit to insurance to get reimbursement and all of that. But when you really think about the fears that was going on for everybody during COVID of like layoffs and am I, sure. how am I going to pay my bills, let alone how am I going to, you know, pay for mental health services? We definitely saw a decline in referrals and caseloads during probably the first couple months of that. And so that was really scary and really stressful. And then on top of that, we joked and to say we joked, I mean, whatever, sick jokes, I guess that, you know, if we were anxious about COVID before, wait until you sit with for eight hours worth of in a, in a day being told how stressful COVID is, like (laughs) you're sure as hell going to be stressed out about COVID at the end of that. And so as much as we're trying to like keep our wits about us and just stay (laughs) client after client of like processing through it and helping them ground and cope. And then at the end of the day, we're like, holy shit, like what, what is going, what's going to happen? Like we, spent a lot of time as providers, I think, just giving each other support at the end of the day and trying to just reassure each other because that was a really scary time. Yeah, for sure. You kind of touched on it and we talked about it a little bit earlier, but people don't go to therapy generally to talk about 
all of the wonderful things that are happening in their lives. <laughs> so you spend a lot of time talking with people about, you know, some of the trashier aspects of reality. And that I'm sure can be really difficult. You know, you're spending so much time empathizing and listening. I know for myself, I'm not the most empathetic person, but from what I've seen of therapists that I've interacted with, um, you tend to be very empathetic. And so how does that, like, how does that affect you on a day-to-day basis of, okay, here's eight hours of some of the darkest or heaviest thoughts that some of these people mm-hmm. need to get off their chest. And then let me just go home and be happy. Like, <laughs> how do, yeah. how are you able to fight through that? It's a valid question. Um, I think that a lot of that comes with many years of learning how to not take it home with you and learning how to, um, how to not let it really bleed into your personal thoughts and feelings and, and, um, really that is then ruining the rest of your day. And I think it has a lot to do with population as well. You know, when I was working in managed care and I was working with a lot of children in the foster system, Mm-hmm. That was really hard to shake off there, you know, often that a lot of days ended in tears of just the cruel, disgusting world that we live in. And um, that was really heavy. And I don't think that that's something that I could sustain as a career. And I know a lot of people don't, a lot of people start a managed care, but it is, it is really heavy and, and can get incredibly draining. And not to say that the the stuff that we deal with in private practice is any easier, so to speak, but often it's different. And so while, you know, maybe in a day of eight clients, eight sessions, maybe it's more like anywhere from a quarter to half of those that I'm dealing with true trauma. And then the other ones often it's dealing with communication and relationships and Mm -hmm. day-to-day stressors and things that are stressful and overwhelming, um, but it's not something that is necessarily going to derail me later in my day. And so part of that early on, like as an, you know, early therapist, you really, you learn the self-care and you learn the ways to shake that off of you when it, when it is a heavy one. But I, I won't, for one minute claim that I don't still end my days in tears sometimes when, you know, I do an intake of really heavy trauma or really distorted core beliefs of somebody sitting there telling me what a disgusting, horrible person they believe they are because maybe they've been told that or been led to believe that. I still end plenty of days with a very broken heart. And I, I often say that, um, you know, the, the day that my heart stops breaking for other people is, is the day I I've got to call it because if I'm, if my heart is not breaking and I'm not having that empathy and that compassion, then I I can't provide the quality of work that my clients deserve. Yeah. And I really admire that. I think that's a lot of dedication. I imagine it takes a toll and I, I respect that. I'm an engineer, so I spend all my days just playing with robots and whatever else. And well, that's got to take you know, a toll th- too. <laughs> the, things that, can that. be hard, right? And <laughs> yeah. Sometimes customer requests can be a little annoying or whatever else. Sure. Hopefully they don't listen to the podcast. But uh, <laughs> but nothing is ever, like I've never 
cried at work. Like I've never, you know, ended a day in tears or anything because at the end of the day, I hop in my car and now listen to an audiobook and it's like, deal with that stuff tomorrow. Like, yeah. you know, yes. don't, no worries until tomorrow morning. And yeah. that's just it. But I imagine it, it can be a bit more difficult with some of the more kind of emotionally draining aspects yeah. of your job. There are certainly times, yeah, that we do not have that luxury of just shaking off the day, but it is such an honor to be trusted with, with that and to be trusted that somebody uh, feels that um, they'll allow me with, to know their trauma, to know their heart, to know those deepest thoughts and, and, um, and dreads and worries and all of those things. And so that's often how I view it, even when it's a heavy day or if I, if, if it's an emotional day for me, often I tell my clients that, that just what an honor it is to be trusted with their story. Sure. That's great. So you mentioned that probably about half of what you're working on with your clients is relationship based. Yeah, I do a lot of relationship work. So I've seen a couple of pretty interesting posts that you've made on social media about ending relationships positively mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. as beginning relationships. Let's start with beginning, but I'd like to talk about both. So sure. what are what's some advice that you would give someone who's kind of in the beginning of a relationship and learning how to be more vulnerable or more open with their partner or their special, their significant other? Yeah, so a couple things that I encourage people to be aware of is the first one is their attachment style. And so being aware of our programming, self-awareness is such a key component of just day-to-day -day functioning, but especially when starting a new relationship or even learning how to function in an already existing relationship, being aware of, of your programming. So how do you relate to, to others? And what was the story, the narrative told to you by your caregivers early on that really set the stage for now how you view your romantic partner or even any relationships that you're in. A lot of us function in relationships without even the awareness of like these behaviors came from somewhere and these mm -hmm. are often learned behaviors and not only learned behaviors in regard to how we interact with others, but learned behaviors and how we view ourselves. So our belief system, which comes from those early interactions with you know, our primary caregivers, how, how responsive they were, how kind, nurturing, warm, or neglectful or dismissive or mean, whatever those consistent, that consistent treatment of us early on was, that's gonna set the stage for the beliefs that we have about ourselves. If we have to, work to earn someone's affection or if if we're worthy just as we are and that belief then impacts our our thoughts and then our feelings and our behaviors and ultimately our outcomes in relationships and so that's a big part of what i do with people early on or or when i'm doing couples work is like let's really dig in and see what what belief system you're operating on and how that's influencing your perception of your partner and your perception of your worth in that relationship. So attachment style, understanding programming, um, and then understanding your triggers is really, which is tied to the belief system. But that's also a big thing as well. Wow. You, <laughs> that's a lot of work. So sorry. <laughs> no, no, you're just so like intelligent. And it's just very similar to conversations that I have with Lexi as well. 
And I know yes. you know her as Alexa, but you're just going to have to deal with it. <laughs> I, no, I asked her if I can call her Lexi and she says, no, it's, it's a separate thing. <laughs> well, you can call her Alexa and I'll call her Lexi. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> no, it's just interesting. The, like your vocabulary is just totally different from mine. And so in line with Lexi's, it, it, I think it's so funny, but I love what you said about kind of getting to know yourself and how that impacts your relationship with other people as well. Right. If you're just trying to, either if you're a pleaser, like if you're just trying to please this other person, Mm -hmm. or if you are like really obstinate and just want them to conform to you, like you can't really know what the best way to kind of navigate this relationship is going to be without knowing yourself first. That's exactly it. And there's so many, you know, other podcasts that I do, either I'll do it on uh, codependent narcissistic dance or the love addict versus the love avoidant. And a lot of that programming that we have early on, there's a concept called the adaptive child. And essentially the idea is that we learn the behaviors early on that we need for survival and that survival with our caregivers. And so whether that is like, as you said, people pleasing, that's a beautiful example that we have to make everyone around us happy. We have to make everyone else a priority. We have to take care of everyone around us or the avoidant Mm -hmm. where it's just stay out of the way, stay out of, don't, don't be seen, don't be heard and just stay away. We carry that with us into adulthood and and the love addict often seeks out the love avoidant and vice versa. And so having an awareness around what is your style, what, how do you interact in relationship um, makes a big difference in knowing what you attract um, and what you're attracted to, but then also Mm -hmm. makes a big difference in knowing patterns of behavior. We're not as unique as we want to think that we are. And we all demonstrate a lot of very uh, similar patterns of behavior in relationships. Interesting. So let's talk about bad, not bad relationships, but just ending a relationship. So you're ending a relationship for one reason or another. How do you go about doing that in the most healthy way? Yeah, that's a really good question. And the posts that you speak of on my Instagram, I'm currently recently going through a divorce as I'm sure you know, based on my posts. And I've been really blessed in that process. You know, the man that I chose to marry, I chose to marry him for a reason because he's a really good man. And he's Mm -hmm. a really good man in relationship and a really good man outside of relationship. And so I try to keep that in mind when I'm talking to other individuals about the process of healthy breakup, because I recognize that Richard and I are in a unique position in the sense that we desire what's best for each other, whether we're together or not. And that's not always the case for everyone. And so when I'm sitting with people in sessions talking about, I mean, I talk about this multiple times a week of people looking to end a relationship, as you're saying, it's a very common thing. And, and talking a lot about, I guess, from multiple angles, because one of the first things that I talk about is that when somebody's wanting to end a relationship and they don't feel like they have this justifiable reason. Sure. They didn't cheat on you or. Yes. You know, there's, you or whatever. Exactly. Mm-hmm. There's not domestic violence. There's not infidelity. And so the fact that somebody decides to no longer want to be together, there's a lot of like guilt and shame that comes along with that. And a lot of feelings of what's wrong with me that I can't just be content in this relationship. And so that's a big part of like, even where we started is that, 
you know, everyone has the right to, to their happiness and to make decisions that are best for them, even if it's not necessarily what the other person wants. But a component of that is that because people are often looking for a justifiable reason, there's plenty of times when people will then try to create a justifiable reason. And so we call it like, I, I say often in session, like, you don't have to wait for the straw. Like the straw is often what makes the ability to remain either co-parents or just amicable in general. When we wait for the straw, that, that usually like demolishes any chance at anything else. And so really talking through, if you decide you don't want to be in relationship, part of showing love and respect for that other person is to be honest and open with them about that without either forcing them to have to do it or you feeling like you have to come up with this significant reason. Sure. And so really, I guess the point of that being that when you know that that's what you want, then you figure out how to move forward with that without waiting for that big incident. And then the other component too that I talk to people a lot about as well is, is the not leaving for the grass is greener, right? Because I'm here to tell you, <laughs> <laughs> it is not greener. And, um, and that is what a lot of times people will sit there and say, well, if I just had a partner who did this or a partner who did that, yeah, well, they might do this and that, but that means they're not doing this and that, you know? And so there's never going sure. to be that total package. And so really talking about it from that angle too, of like, what is the motivation for leaving? But when we talk about a healthy breakup, Really, I believe the foundation of that is keeping in mind, and I, I wrote an article a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago on it, and really the idea being that you loved and respected that person for a reason at one point, and so mm -hmm. going into the relationship, so there's no reason you can't go out of the relationship with the same love and respect. I like that. Not, so I'm curious, oh, what, not easy? <laughs> well, not easy. Uh, yeah, definitely not easy. So I'm curious... You know, ending a relationship, a romantic relationship is one thing because you're kind of saying, okay, this isn't the, like the one romantic relationship that I want, right? Or like this, you know, you can really, or should probably only have one romantic relationship. I'm interested to know what your thoughts are on breaking up with a friend, <laughs> a non-romantic okay. relationship, but I don't like spending time with this person anymore or whatever the case might be. Like you kind of want to cut ties with someone, mm -hmm. but you don't have like that justifiable reason like, oh, this person's a backstabber or whatever else. You just like don't like, and maybe that's just me. Like maybe other people don't no, that's think about that, a, but. Oh my God. I talk about that in session all the time. That's such a good question. And I love that you brought that up because it's such a good question that doesn't get talked about in this format hardly at all. Well, the thing is, like, you can have as many friends as you want. And so there's, <laughs> it's not like, oh, well, you're not the one for me. It's like, well, you can have as many friends as you want. So why can't I be your friend? But right. you also only have a limited amount of time. And, exactly. And really empathy. I don't, well, maybe that's just me as well, but <laughs> I can only give so much. I totally agree. And I talk about that all the time, that we have limited time, energy, resources, emotional capacity, and we have to be cautious with who we expend that on. And, mm -hmm. um, and you know what, it's so funny because when I, a lot of the relationship work that I do and digging in with clients on the, whether being a love addict or a love avoidant or narcissism, codependency, 
often that's exactly what it turns to is like, oh my God, I, I think my best friend is also a narcissist. Or I think that <laughs> that person I keep hanging out with is, you know, there, there is so much insight when understanding how humans operate in general. And there's often a, a theme, we'll say a trend for an individual. If an individual seeks narcissistic partners, if they really stop and take an inventory, it is very likely that a majority of their friends, family members, they're surrounded by narcissists or uh -huh. surrounded by love avoidance or, and that I won't bore your listeners with all of the programming of that. But I mean, that is, there is a very clear reason that that happens. And that all goes back to the programming. But regardless with the friendship, a, a big thing that I talk about is that if, if that person is impacting your mental health in any way or is not creating any value to your life if the relationship does not bring you fulfillment or joy it doesn't matter if it's a friend relative doesn't matter what it is you have the right to separate yourself from that individual the breakup with a friend can obviously be kind of awkward and and maybe like you're saying, not as clear because you can have multiple friends, but having at times it is having a conversation of, Hey, you know, for whatever reasons, X, Y, and Z, this relationship doesn't feel good for me um, either at this time, or if you've decided at all, but also sometimes we have to keep in mind that we can set boundaries without having those weird and awkward, uncomfortable conversations. And sometimes setting those boundaries sure. is just removing yourself from those interactions. No, that's a good point. And I think sometimes you may feel like, oh, I'm just spending too much of my emotional capacity or too much of my time or whatever else. And if you set some boundaries, you can still maintain a good friendship with that person. Just right. kind of st take a step back a little bit. Right. Right. Because I have a lot of people who tell me like, you know, their needy friend and their needy friend that won't stop calling and texting and will take hours of their day. And, and the, all of that is really inappropriate at, at a certain point. And so mm -hmm. there is absolutely nothing wrong with setting boundaries. Sure, I can call you, I have 15 minutes to talk, you know, things like that, where just being very clear in this is what I have to give. And the hardest part of that though, is that setting boundaries is hard, but holding boundaries is even harder. And so that's oh, yeah. a lot of the work that we do as well. For sure. I just want to put it out there if any of my two or three friends are listening that I don't think that you're needy. This is just a question that I was curious about. Asking for a friend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, man, I feel like I could just ask so many more questions, but I want to be respectful of your time and our listeners as well. I just have a, a couple more. Sure. This is one that I have seen a lot of, and I've been really curious what your thoughts are. I've seen a lot of people who put someone up on a pedestal or as kind of like a role, role model mm -hmm. and then something happens. This person either betrays them or just, you know, you find out about something that they did in the past or whatever the case might be. And then all of a sudden you're experiencing this kind of cognitive dissonance of, wait, I thought this person was like an angel. And now I found out that they, I mean, it could be like they cheated on my mom, you know? Mm you find out that a parent has cheated on the other parent in the past, like that can be absolutely devastating. Right. 
how do you deal with that when you're hit with this sudden realization that, oh, this person I thought was an angel is not? Yeah, that's a good question. When I'm talking with clients about somebody they've put on a pedestal, that's often a symptom of codependent behavior. And so we're quite frequently digging into why does that person get put on a pedestal? Like what, what about them qualifies them to be put on the pedestal? And also at what cost to the client or to the individual who has done that? A lot of times when we put people on a pedestal, we're willing to tolerate things that maybe we know we shouldn't be tolerating or look past things or, um, and so often some of these red flags already exist of whatever that behavior then ends up coming out. Um, but because they're on a pedestal, we are willing to look past it or deny it or pretend it's not there. And so that can be even, you know, a very, basic place to start that if you do have somebody on a pedestal to take a step back and kind of look, why are they, why are they there? What does that say about me that I'm putting them there and really examining it from that angle? Because, um, that, that inequality in a relationship, um, usually just sets one person up to be taken advantage of and, uh, used, exploited, all of those things. Um, but then if that's where you have somebody and, and something like that comes out, um, and I think that's really hard to answer in like a general way because it really would depend on what that thing is. But, you know, I had a client recently and um, her best friend and there's difficulties with trusting people. And, and she had a best friend who she finally started to trust and was really confiding in and then found out mm-hmm. the best friend had lied to her about something. and that was devastating. I mean, that was like multiple weeks of devastation because of the trust issues that already existed. And then giving this person being so vulnerable with this person and and then being crushed. And Mm -hmm. part of what we talked about that though, was what is her perspective? Is there potential that her own belief systems have, has made this issue a much bigger thing than it actually is? Is there potential that her belief systems have personalized it when it really had nothing to do with her, you know? And so that is a big part of like, if somebody were to be presented with that, it's really like assessing, okay, so if you find out your parent cheated on your other parent, yeah, that sucks. That's painful. And that, that makes you question a lot of things, but then also that parent cheated on that other parent. And that relationship is not a reflection of you. And that behavior is not a reflection of how that person feels about you. And so that is a lot of the work that I do with people when this type of thing happens is really kind of assessing how does their belief system influence how they're feeling. And then also really challenging the perspective of was that behavior really have anything to do with you at all? And then if it does, we do a lot of conversation around boundary setting and repair and is this relationship worth saving or you know and that's why i'm saying it's really hard in a general sense but there are a lot of directions to go with that oh absolutely yeah i mean it's hard to kind of just give it a two or three minute answer obviously that's the reason why you have professionals like yourself who spend you know hours with people (laughs) trying to work through these things right yeah a really common thing that i see is people are often really willing to throw out 
a relationship, like, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, like Mm -hmm. really willing to dispose of an entire relationship over one rupture. And I think it's important for people to understand that a true, honest, authentic, vulnerable relationship is going to have ruptures. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be arguments. There's going to be at times betrayal. There's all of that stuff exists because we're human and we all make mistakes. And I think what I really challenge people to look at when this type of situation happens is if that is that relationship worth salvaging? Is that, Mm -hmm. is there something about that relationship that is worth keeping? And if so, I think that it is much easier for people to throw out a relationship than to work through conflict. And if we could all learn a little bit of conflict resolution, I think we might be a bit of a better world. Absolutely. Your phrasing with the baby in the bathwater is exactly what I was going to say, because I think we've gotten to this point where a lot of people, like you said, it's just easier to not forgive someone and to just say, yep, this is, you know, you screwed Mm -hmm. me and now this relationship is over. And I think there's a lot to be said about the power of forgiveness. And I, I think even for yourself, even if the person, if the other person is willing to, you know, resolve that conflict with you. Mm-hmm. then you can you can even have a stronger relationship after something like that. Oh, absolutely. If they're not, it's still not beneficial for you to hold a grudge and have that bitterness inside of you. So my recommendation for what it's worth is, <laughs> you know, for, forgive them. Find a way to to forgive them. And if you do need to kind of throw that relationship out anyway because they're unwilling to work on it, you still need to be able to forgive them so that you don't have to hold on to that bitterness because that's just an extra i mean if they don't care then here you have someone who hurt you and they don't care and they're fine with it but you're still hurting even though they don't care like how messed up is that well we call that giving your power away and that is when you give other people control over you that's an exactly an example you are you are letting that person dictate your happiness. Yeah, that's not right. That's not right at all. I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a huge trend in positivity toward kind of overcoming the stigma of therapy. Mm-hmm. Even as far as like 10 years ago when I was in high school, it was, you know, therapy was like, oh, you must be like psychotic or something, right? Right. Which is totally just obscenely wrong, right? Yes. And so it's been really cool to see that now over half the people that I know go to therapy and the other half just haven't told me that they go to therapy. <laughs> right. But it seems like, you know, everybody's got a, a therapist now or at least has gone, right, for one thing yeah. or another. And I think that's a great thing that people are realizing, oh, wait a second, mental health is like just as important as physical health. So right. why do you think we've seen that trend recently and what can we do to continue to push that further? I think there's a few things that have contributed to it. I really do think in spite of how much we want to say that social media is the devil, I really do think that social media has contributed to normalizing mental health and receiving um, mental health services. And Mm -hmm. I think that the way that people talk about it so openly 
everyday people, but then let's take it a step further because really the celebrity pre presence around mental health, I think has made a huge impact on people's willingness to accept it and see it as something beyond, as you're saying, you must be crazy if you have a therapist. And so I think the, the celebrity support of it and then that the social media support, which has then led to the third component is that people like you and I are willing to go sit down and have coffee and talk about our therapists, right? And sure. that that is also really normalizing it because it's become really a topic of everyday conversation. And so not only on this big platform, but then people just being willing to say, oh yeah, my therapist told me versus it being this deep, dark secret, I think is also mm -hmm. really contributing to that it's it, in a lot of ways is very similar to when I went and had my checkup last week. Right. Imagine if everyone was secretive about like, I have a primary care physician, <laughs> like, ooh, <laughs> you know, like, Yes. or, exactly. you know, if, or if people waited until something like terrible happened to them physically before they go to the doctor, that's yeah. a problem. And You're yet right. a lot of people wait until like just absolute rock bottom before they'll consider seeking out help from a mental health professional right. and you could be helped a lot sooner and you could work through some things probably a little bit easier if you try to take care of those things a little bit sooner. Yeah. And I really believe just like with physical health, also with mental health, that prevention is key. And so there's a lot of clients who I work with, they'll come and see me every single week just over and over and sometimes we have something pressing to work on and sometimes it's a check-in mm -hmm. of the week and and there's a lot to be said about having somebody to just process you know a unbiased third party to just process with each week about the conflict with your partner or the conflict with your child or the conflict with your mother whatever whatever it is that you have somebody an outsider that's able to process and challenge your perspective I think makes, you know, a really big difference in just our day-to-day -day functioning. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even at my job, you know, we've got weekly, monthly, quarterly, all these preventative maintenance items that, you know, why are we greasing these bearings? They're working fine. Like, yeah, they're working fine now because we grease them every quarter or every right. month or whatever, right? We yes. don't want to wait until they're seized up to try to fix the problem. Like, let's just take a few minutes and grease these right now. And same thing. Mm -hmm. Let's not wait until like you're crippled by whatever you're going through. Right. Let's, just, let's talk about it. Right. Right. That's a great analogy. That's exactly it. And when we can talk through it and better equip you for then, you know, the next big thing often doesn't feel so big when you're more equipped for it. And so when you know how to handle it and you know how to, whether that's self-regulate or cope or, communicate more effectively when you're more prepared and have the skill set mm. those big issues don't feel so big anymore right i feel like we could talk for so long and <laughs> i believe we could <laughs> what's nice is you do have a podcast right yes yes um we don't do uh interviews on ours but we do yeah so evolve counseling and behavioral health services on youtube and then podcasts my colleague michael Quinkner and i do videos together yeah on we do a lot of parenting stuff but we've actually been expanding to more general mental health topics yeah and i've listened to a few of your podcasts and i've listened to you as a guest on a few others i've noticed that you're really socially active on 
a lot of different social media platforms, podcasts, Instagram. Where can people find you? It's Evolve. EvolveCounselingAZ.com is our website. And then my Instagram is at EvolveCounselingAZ. Okay, perfect. And then we'll link that in the show notes for the podcast. But then second bonus question, how do you manage to spend all of the time that you do on all of these other things? Like, like you're so nice to hop on a podcast with me and all these other people when I know that you're super busy with all the other things that you've got going on, but that's, that's kind of a part of marketing, right? That's part of being a business owner. How do you, how have you found that? Yeah, I think so twofold. It is part of marketing and it is part, it's the networking process and all of that. But then also I am really passionate about what I do. So it kind of works out and any opportunity that I can have to talk about, especially when it comes to relationships and programming and these, these topics that are really close to my heart in the sense that I really think that if more people knew these things, it would make such a big difference. I have a lot of people, you know, we're non-local podcasts that I, that I do. And, you know, when we go to finish up, they're like, talk about, you know, sorry, this won't benefit you directly because we're out of state. And I'm like, that's, that is so not my purpose of jumping on these type of things or so not my purpose of my posts on Instagram. It's while it is part of the marketing and networking that comes along with business ownership, I'm also extremely passionate about what I do and extremely passionate about people. And so if I can get this message out of whatever that message is that I think could benefit somebody in some way, I'm going to make the time to do it because I love what I do. Yeah, I love that. And listeners definitely go give her a follow. I'd say what probably half of your stuff is like half is really funny and half of it is really (laughs) meaningful. Like some of the memes that you post up are just like, Oh, on the story. Yeah. (laughs) On the stories and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose usually on the page, it's a lot more like motivational and whatnot, but the story, there's some pretty, pretty funny stuff. My uh, posts are definitely more thought provoking and my stories are definitely more reflection of my personality. (laughs) I love it. And I think that honestly, like we were talking about COVID earlier and how we're all coping with it. I wonder sometimes what it would have been like to go through COVID in like the year 2000 when we didn't have all these memes and social media platforms, like as kind of messed up as some of the memes that we see are sometimes because COVID is obviously very serious and impacting people like in a very heavy way. A lot of times Mm -hmm. some of these memes are just like exactly what you need. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like you just need a laugh, right? I mean, I totally agree. I totally agree. And they, I mean, yes, just, and that's, you know, when I said at the beginning of the interview about like our stick joke about like when we get to the end of the day and yeah, COVID is really messed up, but laughter was one of the biggest ways that I know for me personally, a lot of days just sitting back like, and heaven forbid you say this couldn't get any worse because it always found a way. (laughs) So and but that was exactly it like you're saying with the memes and just you know making light of what we can yeah absolutely well liz i really appreciate you coming on the podcast this has been a ton of fun thank you so much for having me it was definitely a pleasure to receive the invite so thank you so much thanks for listening everyone if you like what you heard from liz and you want to follow her online 
Check her out at EvolveCounselingAZ.com or on Instagram at EvolveCounselingAZ. If you're interested in getting some therapy, I definitely recommend it. And Dr. Fedrick is more than qualified to help you with whatever you need to work through. As always, keep building. Keep building.